Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. In this second series of the podcast, we're branching out to find people who are already making it happen. This is where we explore the interface between science and spirituality, politics and philosophy, creativity and activism, and everything that helps us move towards a place where a new way of being is the next obvious step. For my first guest in this series, I am delighted to be able to welcome Della Duncan. I got to know Della when she was teaching on the Masters in Sustainable Economics down at Schumacher College, which is also where I started listening to her groundbreaking Upstream podcast. We'll talk a little bit about that in our podcast that follows, but the take-home message is, if you haven't already listened to it, put it on your list now. Along with the Masters in Sustainable Economics, Della's a graduate of UC Davis with a Bachelor's in International Relations and Sociology. She has a certificate in Authentic Leadership, and she's completed Joanna Macy's work that reconnects Intensive Programme, and we'll talk more about that in the podcast too. These days, she describes herself as a renegade economist, and dedicates herself to a just transition to a more sustainable and equitable world. You can find out more about her on her website, dellazduncan.com, and I will put a link in the show notes. But for now, let's listen to the interview with Della Duncan. Della, welcome, and thank you for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. It's a real honour to have you as our first guest. Thank you so much, Amanda. I'm happy to be here. So, before we head more deeply into you and who you are and what you're doing, I just would like to ask, what is most alive for you in this moment? This is what we ask all our students when they come on to the membership, and I think it feels to me like the way I'd like to start the podcast. What's most alive to me right now is this conversation about whether humans are inherently self-interested or inherently altruistic or whether we have the capacity for both and how do we activate the goodness or kindness or altruism inherent in each of us. And so what's most alive for me is how do I continually activate that that goodness, that good nature, that altruism, and also how do I continue to create systems and opportunities for people to enable that part of themselves as well. Brilliant. And so... We heard a little bit about your bio before we started, but let's take a step back and look at how did, because I don't think most of the people walking around at the moment, that's their primary question. And I know that it is for you, and I think it has been as long as I've known you. So can we have a little bit of background of how you came to be a person for whom that is the thing that's most alive at the moment? Yeah, I I came to, well, I guess I would say an ecological, spiritual journey from a place actually of self-interest. I came because I was having a lot of anxiety and wanting to feel better within my own body. And then that led me to a therapist who recommended mindfulness meditation. And again, for a self-interested perspective, fortunately, the second mindfulness retreat that I went on totally shattered that idea that mindfulness or a spiritual practice was for my own, you know, self-enlightenment or self kind of feeling better within my my own ego, my own body. And it was Joanna Macy who was the teacher of that second retreat. And it was a it was a retreat on spiritual ecology and work that reconnects and it profoundly 
shocked me into a different path, a path of one seeing, you know, myself as something far greater than my individual being, seeing myself as part of a more ecological self, a living whole, and deeply interconnected with life, you know, with all of life, with other beings. And so that kind of yeah, it really changed my perspective of what is the self and also what is the point of my spiritual practice and spiritual ecology in general. And was that something that grew out of who Joanna Macy is as a person, do you think? Because I, I'm so in awe of the work that she does. And so I'm wondering, can we unpick a little bit more about how a person who turns up at a, a retreat wanting basically to heal, I'm guessing, the pain inside as most of us do, how you came away from it, what, three, five, seven days later, with a totally different view on the world. Can we go a little bit more deeply into that? Yeah. So Joanna Macy, who's you know in her 80s at this point, lives in Berkeley, California. She would identify herself as an eco-justice Buddhist philosopher and activist. And I remember when I interviewed her, I introduced her, and I think I left out activist, and she corrected me immediately. So she really defines herself as someone who's in activism. And the retreat, which yeah, shows this kind of journey well, was you know a mindfulness retreat for women. And that's what drew me to it, was just being on a seven-day retreat, meditating. And I had done one before, a five-day retreat, meditating in silence. And this one was similar, but then Joanna Macy was the teacher, and I had no idea who she was. So what was different was immediately I came to realize a lot of what we were looking at was not our individual pain, but our our feeling of hopelessness or despair or grief or anger for what's happening in the rest of the world. So it was this sense of that our, our pain is not individual, but that it is collective and of our sensing into what's happening in the rest of the world. And then what do we do with that pain? And so we did a practice, I remember, called the Bowl of Tears, where we each went into the center of a circle with this bowl with water in it and cried into the bowl. And they were, there were, they were for our tears. The bowl was for our tears for the more than human world and, and for all of the web of life. So it was it was just this radical expanding notion of self. We also did a practice of walking in the garden blindfolded or with our eyes closed led by a partner and then every once in a while our partner would say open your eyes and look in the mirror. And we were looking at a branch or the sky or a leaf and it was just this sense of the ecological self just an expansion of who we are. And uh, it's it's already in Buddhism um, in many ways, this kind of uh, transience of all things and interconnectedness of beings. But this was a much more vivid feel felt experience of that reality. Magic. And I, I remember when you were teaching us at Schumacher, we did that blindfold in pairs out in the garden as one of the very first things that we did, and it was it was profoundly moving. And also an extraordinary way of connecting with our partners. So there was a there was the connection with the ecological self and the connection with each other as humans within that wider landscape. And so I'm wondering, I, I am just in awe actually of you going somewhere and never having heard of Joanna Macy. And so you didn't come with having read Active Hope or any of her other work. But you then went on to 
work in her work that reconnects intensive program. And so you bring that round the world now. And you must have seen dozens, if not hundreds of other people go through much the same process as you did in that first week. You must have led them through it. And I'm wondering, is it universal? Is it that if all of us are able to cry into the bowl, or even offered the opportunity to cry into the bowl, that we come to understand our connection? Is it is it intrinsic to everybody? I do think it is intrinsic to everybody. And the way that I've made sense of it, the most clear kind of example is from actually liberation psychology. This was kind of what helped me realize this, which was this this tradition of therapy of psychology really founded in Latin and South America. And it was, it's this idea that, you know, one could go to a therapist or a psychologist, psychiatrist, and there are moments where we have individual pain, such as the death of a loved one or, uh, you know, a change in our job or, you know, a breakup, that kind of thing where there are moments or, or our, our sickness, illness, right? These are, these are things that cause us pain that is pretty individual. But the idea behind liberation psychology and also the work that reconnects in general is that so much of our pain, so much of our anger, our sadness, our grief, our despair is actually more systemic. It's actually felt because of our, of our ecological, political, social crises or challenges of our time. So it, it's a different way of seeing our pain. And once we do that, uh, then we realize that we are interconnected. There's an insight of our reality that comes from that recognition of our pain being more collective that then immediately connects us and helps us with systems thinking and helps us feel more, uh, you know, a sense of an ecological self and more embedded in this web of life. And so then, having done that in the depth that you have, if you go out and stand by the ocean or stand by a tree or stand by a rock, do you have a sense of meeting another consciousness? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I think it's, you know, it's that practice initially of that open your eyes and look in the mirror that started it. But then it was also, you know, learning through more spiritual ecology traditions and practices, such as the idea of interbeing from Buddhism, the sense that we inter are and there's very real, you know, scientific ways that you can look at this, such as if I stood with a tree, just the the sense of breathing uh, that the tree would do and I would do and that interconnectedness, but also the fact that I eat food. And so that's a communion with other beings and, you know, go to the bathroom and all of that. But there's so much interbeing that actually exists when we feel into it. So absolutely, when I would meet a rock or the ocean or a tree, I completely have a different sense of a relationship with that other being. I, you're right, I see them as another being. And not only that, but I see it as, a, as an interconnectedness. And what is your role in that web of life, do you think? If, if everything is conscious and we each take our place within it, do you have any sense of what the role of humanity is in general or what your role is specifically? In for humanity in general, I I love that image you've probably seen of a there's like ego versus eco and in the ego image there's a triangle and the human is at the top of the pyramid and then all the other beings are below him. 
her heart, right? And then in the other example, the eco, it's a human is is in a circle with many other beings, and there's kind of a equality and harmony embedded in that image. And that really sticks out to me to answer your question about the humanity piece is that we are humble members in this universe. We are we are you know in communion with other beings. We are not dominant over or separated from. And so yeah, we have we have purpose and we have contribution, as does the wind, as does the ocean, as does the the trees. So it's we're we're all part of a community. We're communing, right? And then for me uh, specifically. I really, and I know we're going to speak about the four areas of the great turning, um, which is part of Joanna Macy's framework, but I really operate in this realm of the shift in consciousness. So I'm definitely someone who, through my own experience of recognizing other paradigms, other worldviews, and, and feeling them, trying them on, and then starting to see from them, that has now become my contribution is creating invitations, whether that's through coaching or consulting or through workshop facilitation or podcast, right, is is inviting other ways of seeing that allow for more interconnectedness and a more thriving people and planet. Brilliant. So we could go two ways. I would love to talk to you in a little bit about the Upstream podcast because it is one of the inspirations for this podcast. But just before we go to that, can we talk a little bit more then about Joanna Macy and the Pillars of the Great Turning, because I think it's an extraordinarily useful map for people who are interested in this area. So, yeah, tell us more about that, please. Yeah, so Joanna Macy has written many, many books. Uh, Two of them that I would recommend, though, for folks listening are Active Hope, which is more of a just a regular uh, description of some of her ideas and thinking and and ways to face the mess we're in without going crazy. That's actually the tag, you know, the subline for the book. And then the other one is Coming Back to Life, and that's the facilitator guide, because the work that reconnects is an embodied practice. It's a journey that folks can go on, and it's open source through this book called Coming Back to Life. And so this idea of the three pillars or three areas of the great turning can be found in both of those books and also on her website. And it it really is this sense of that to understand the three pillars, you have to understand what the great turning is first. So the great turning comes from this idea that there are three ways that we can see what's happening in the world right now from there. It's not whether one is right or wrong. It's almost like three pairs of glasses that we could put on or three views from which we can see the world. The first is this idea of business as usual. This business as usual is that there's nothing quite so alarming, uh, that the economy ebbs and flows, the climate warms and cools, that technology will save us. It's really this sense we would get from a open business as usual kind of sign that we might see. The second view is the view of the great the great unraveling. And it's this idea that everything is is going to hell, right? It's that our political systems are unraveling, social and ecological systems are unraveling. It's a, a, a very uh, dire uh, view. Um, like quite easy to fall of, into. Quite easy to fall into, absolutely. And it comes from David Corton, a systems theorist, who says, 
systems don't just fall over and die, they unravel. And so it's this idea that we could see the unraveling. The third is the great turning. So this is that we can see the great unraveling. We can be with, we can sense it. It's not a denying of unraveling that is happening, but it's a turning towards life despite all odds. And it's a continually showing up for life and choosing life in every moment of every day, both as individuals and systemically, collectively. So within the great turning, within this view of that we can see right now as a time of the great turning. And it's not a blind optimism, like everything's going to work out. It's a, it's an active hope, which is what her, you know, the other book comes from. So it's a, it's a practice, right? And within the great turning, Joanna Macy talks about that there are three areas that are contributions that our work falls within. They're the three areas or three pillars of the great turning. And they are not, one is not more important than any other. They're all of equal importance. And they also, I have to point out as an economist, they may not connect with what we do for paid work. Right. We can have a role or a contribution that is non-monetized, right? Um, and we can also be in multiple areas, but just to just share all that. So the three areas are holding actions, systems designing, and then shift in consciousness. Those are the three areas. The holding actions piece are actions or efforts to stop harm and suffering from happening, so to stop further harm and suffering from happening, or to alleviate harm and suffering that has happened. Yeah. To stop harm and suffering from happening, you know, probably most obviously folks think about activism, such as if somebody you know, went up in a tree and tried to get the tree from not being cut down, yeah. for example, or the water protectors. Yes. Yeah. The water protectors at Standing Rock, another example. So it's that stopping harm and suffering from happening, but it's also the, uh, the whistleblowers, right. who are calling out certain egregious things. It's also journalists, folks who are writing and documenting certain egregious uh, harm and suffering that's happening, trying to stop it, prevent it. But it's also the healing of harm and suffering that has happened. So this is our, our healers, our medicine folks, our, uh, you know, you know, modalities such as dance and yoga and therapy and all of that, that healing of trauma and of difficulty that happens. So there's that as well. Also folks who are social workers or people who work with homeless folks or, um, you know, domestic violence shelters and sexual assault, right? All of that. So that's the, the actions to stop harm and suffering from happening or to heal and address harm and suffering that has happened. The second area is the area of the systems designing or the designers. Sometimes it's called Gaian uh, structures or Gaian designing. And it's, it's this idea of the designing ways of life and systems that are ecological, that are in harmony with the planet, with our ecological systems. I think we ought and, to let those who don't know yeah. that this go, comes from James Lovelock's concept of the earth as a living system, and he called it Gaia. Mm. So the, the adjective comes from comes from that. Sorry, go on with that. Yeah, yeah. No, so so this would be, you know, most obviously like ecological design thinking, right? So the designing in, in alignment with ecology. Uh, and it can be physical products, of course, but it also can be more social systems. So how we organize our political systems, participatory democracy, participatory budgeting, for example. Yes, and our economies, how we dis how we, we could redesign our economies would be would be a system shift. Exactly. Circular economies for 
for example, is another one. Uh, it, it also is our uh, designing our ways of dealing with conflicts or restorative justice, things like that, education. So it's it's the designers among us. And I will definitely point out it it's not necessarily new. It's not people who are inventors or brand new ideas. They also can draw from very ancient and beautiful ways of 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 organizing our social and ecological systems. And so so drawing on indigenous wisdom, for example. And uh, you know, things like permaculture or you know, other ways of farming and agriculture that's related as well. So those that's kind of the, the systems designing or guy and structures designing area. Okay. And then the last area is the area that I mentioned that I'm most connected with myself, which is the area of the shift in consciousness. So these are the folks who are inviting shifts in consciousness, whether it's being an artist, you know, like I'm imagining a Banksy mural you know, just get just one mural, <laughs> yes. just get yes. someone to think differently yeah. about something. Yep. Also musicians, of course, poets, yep. filmmakers, filmmakers, spiritual yep. teachers. So Thich Nhat Hanh, for example, I would say yep. Joanna Macy largely, yep. uh, writers, of course, writers and podcasters, um, podcasters, absolutely. And then teachers. And yeah. I would also add parents. I think parents who are kind of uh, raising, raising, you know, generations to be more kind and compassionate and altruistic. So those are the three areas of the great turning, the three areas that our work may be within. And they're not, uh, like I said, they're not antagonistic and you can be in multiple of them and, and also mm. weave them together beautifully. So do you see this third, this shifting consciousness? Because my understanding of that or my projection of it possibly was that this was shifting ourselves to new levels of consciousness that we don't know yet. I, this may be because Accidental Gods is all about the conscious, the evolution of consciousness. But so you are seeing it as opening the door to consciousness that we already know about, but making it more accessible. Is that how I'm understanding? Because I would have thought of that as systemic change, really. Um, this is. I'm not. I'm just trying to understand what what you yeah. see it as. Yeah. So just one important note to point out is. To I, I see to be a part of the great turning in any of the areas that somebody will have gone through a shift in consciousness, such as what I what happened with me going to Joanna Macy's first retreat. Uh, so the individual journey um, is already in a in a realm of shifting consciousness to be an ecological design thinker, or even to be an activist, uh, you, you know, there, there will have been some shift in consciousness that happens so that folks do act differently. Because business as usual is so much our default and, and you exactly. have to shift out of that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it, so it's, so everyone undergoes shift in consciousness in the realm of the great turning to then see themselves as part of the great turning. But these three areas of the great turning are more, what are, what are your efforts? What are your contribution in? So it's not, so it assumes everyone's been on that shift in consciousness, but this is, what do you do? So if you were a writer, you'd be in the realm of shift in consciousness. But if you were, a, if you were a designer of new systems or systems, right, agriculture or whatever, you will have gone through a shift in consciousness, but you're in the realm of systems design. So just to point that out, but I will, to answer your other question about what sort of shifts in consciousness and from what to what and all of that, 
where where I really get the most understanding around this point is through Danella Meadows' leverage points, places to intervene in a system. And she just speaks about systems change and these kind of acupuncture or leverage points, ways to intervene in a system. And she ranks them. And it's a, it's an amazing essay. She's a, she, she passed away. She's a late systems theorist. I, I did, I've done a podcast. By the time everyone listens to this podcast, they will have had the opportunity to listen to me talking about Delano Meadows. But please go on because you'll do it better than I did. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And I, I guess my, my only point with this is that the highest leverage points, places to intervene in a system that she notes, the second highest one is changing a paradigm or changing the worldview. So creating that shift in consciousness. But the higher one, even higher than that, the, the, you know, the most highest one, the highest one is to transcend paradigms. So to know that even your new paradigm that you're trying on is still yet a paradigm. And so to not get kind of fixed or attached to that. So to answer your question, I think as someone in the shift in consciousness realm, I am drawing from invitations to shift consciousness with the ones I already know about, right? So to lead the practice of folks seeing a mirror in nature, right? A sense of the ecological self. That's one that I've, I've experienced myself. I can articulate um, and I can invite in others. But I, I also, you know, understanding this transcending paradigms piece, I don't want to fixate on that and proselytize and think that is the best. And then, you know, so just to stay, to stay open to not knowing and to humility and that there are, of course, other paradigms and worldviews that I am not even aware of. So I'm only doing shift in consciousness with what I what what is it within my realm, but I'm staying open to that that even higher uh, leverage point of transcending paradigms. Okay, and who are your teachers now? Because Joanna Macy obviously has been and presumably still is, although she must be by now really quite old. Who else, other than her, would you go to for fresh insight, or maybe you go to the rocks and the trees? It's interesting that uh, Joanna Macy actually called me recently and asked me if we could meet to talk about economics because she actually has been doing more uh, more thinking around economics. And we've had great conversations. Uh, sometimes there has felt like uh, some discord or tension between folks in the social justice more social realm of activism and then environmental justice. And she and I both spoke about how how economics feels like a bridge because it also it it's exploitation you know and it's in its most unhealthy form economics can be an exploitation of both people and the planet uh, so and and we can also have systems that are supporting of thriving of both people and the planet so so I think we're we're gonna try to have a conversation about that so I would absolutely still say that she's a wonderful teacher of mine very grateful to be in connection with her. I want to read the book that comes out of this. <laughs> I want to read it before you ever publish it. That's going to be so amazing. Okay, anybody else? Yeah, well, I'm so I'm in this uh, this fellowship right now with this amazing group of folks from all over the world through the London School of Economics, and it's they're they're like I said, folks from all over the world, and mostly the global south. And I'm so I'm really feeling like a like a student to all of them. And, and I'm really learning a lot about decolonization of the mind and of my work um, and all of that. So I'd say that's a, that's a really strong learning point that I'm in right now. Um, and then I would also say Marianne Williamson. I, 
had listened to a couple of talks by her and I'm deep into her books right now. Uh, Tears to Triumph and Return to Love right now. I just, there's something about her framing for relationships and love and also her perspective on many different religions that I'm just really enjoying learning about. So, uh, and then, okay, yes. Yes. And then I would also say the the other one that is really alive for me right now is Marie Kondo, uh, The Art of Tidying Up. And uh, she's the Japanese woman who helps folks uh, go through their belongings and only have that which brings joy in their life. And she she has a Shinto practice uh, originally, and it's very spiritual and it's very shamanic. I am so just blown away by the power of her of her teachings and the the felt experience of practicing it so yeah i would say she's a big teacher for me right now yay more stuff to explore thank you gosh okay so i like time is moving on but we have time still to go back to economics and your conversations with joanna macy because and and how you came to economics because your original work you've done a lot of work with victims of sexual violence and a lot of work around that. And then you kind of stepped sideways and came to England and did economics. And I'd be really interested now, obviously, you're because that seems to me, sorry, I'm being incoherent. That seems to be much more structural change. And yet now, with what you said about your conversations with Joanna Macy, it's feeling as if it's shifting into the realm of shifting consciousness. So did you see it as a shift in consciousness even when you came to Schumacher to study sustainable economics? So in order to answer this question, I need to share about the upstream metaphor because it it feels relevant. Okay. So as you mentioned, uh, my first job out of college was as a rape crisis counselor. So I worked with sexual assault survivors and their loved ones. And so in that world, it was it was very powerful work and really enjoyed it. And while I was there, I heard this metaphor called the upstream metaphor, where it comes from social work and, and public health. And the idea is that you are standing at the bank of a river and you see someone float by who's drowning. So you jump in to save them and pull them to shore. But you look up and then you see more people float by the river's drowning. So you jump in and pull them to shore. And eventually you look up and there's just all these people floating down the river drowning. Someone has to go upstream to figure out why is everyone falling in in the first place. And just to take a moment, if we were to go back to those three areas of the great turning, it is both important in the holding actions piece to pull people out of the river. That is important that we have hotlines for sexual assault survivors and, you know, suicide crisis lines and and soup kitchens, you know, giving food to homeless. And we also need to go upstream and ask, why do we have homelessness? Why do we have sexual violence? Why do we have, you know, uh, suicidality, right? So, so I heard that metaphor in relation to sexual violence work. And it was, why is it important not just to support survivors, but also go upstream and figure out why does sexual violence happen? And what, how can we do prevention work? So that, that really, that idea really touched me. And I was struck by the work. It was really powerful, but I was even more struck by how little the work that we were doing as rape crisis counselors was valued in the economy. And just to share a little bit more about where I am. So I'm, I'm in the Silicon Valley Bay area. So I'm from San Francisco, but worked and lived around the Bay area. And 
at the time it was it felt like we were struggling for funding consistently and we had to beg for money from the kind of the tech companies around us and i just felt this this ridiculousness that the money that we were making and the funding that we were getting was so inequitable to the money that other places were getting so i was wondering why this was so i decided to go upstream and to figure this out so that's what led me on an upstream journey into economics because i really felt that i wanted to learn more about economics to be able to understand all of that so that is what led me to schumacher college and that upstream perspective that going upstream to the root causes, that is the level of shift in consciousness, you know, connecting it with the pillars again. Because it's if we go upstream, this is what I've found, but I'm still on this journey. I'm still going upstream. But I've found that if we go upstream, a lot of these issues like homelessness, inequality, violence come from this disconnection, disconnection with ourselves, with each other, and with the more than human world. And so therefore the antidote is this paradigm shift or the shift in consciousness into a more ecological worldview, this sense of a more ecological and interconnected self. So all we have to do is make that happen and the world will be a different place. Yeah. Um, so while you were at Schumacher, you began the the Upstream podcast, and now we understand why it's called what it's called. Um, and it seems to me that that has taken you all around the world, and you've been speaking to a lot of different people who are endeavouring to create a more equitable economy or a more equitable society. Has that have you, has that given you hope that it's possible? Yeah, I I would say that I've. I, I came to create the Upstream podcast with my co-producer, Robert Raymond, as a way of sharing out what I was learning at Schumacher College, because we were such a small class, and I just I wanted to share it out further. So that's that's why it was created. And through that, I've gotten to, like you said, meet so many interesting folks from many different disciplines, you know, from solidarity economics, feminist economics, gift economy economics, you know, there's many different traditions. Um, and then also tell these stories. So through the documentaries, stories of like Mondragon or Greece, uh, also of you know, Iceland, we're, we're working on something now for that. But, but so basically to tell these stories, but to, has it given me hope? I would say it's, it's helped me on my own learning journey because I get to ask questions and I get to read the books before I interview folks and I get to learn. So all of that, yes. Um, but hope that's a little tricky because I, I have gotten into a, like a block or a wall at this place where, um, a lot of a lot of uh, endeavors to to change systems or to do good in the world still get stymied or stuck with uh, with difficulties of of greed or egoism or capitalism. It's it's so that's why I'm saying this question of who we are as humans is really alive for me right now, and 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 knowing that we have the capacity for both selfishness and ego behavior but also of good and but yet that that struggle just continues to come up no matter what and to give a more concrete example going to Mondragon which is the you know world's largest cooperative ecosystem in Spain in the Basque region of Spain 
so excited to go to this place. But then when I went, I just felt that they were, they were struggling in ways that, you know, other places struggle being kind of an Island in this global sea of capitalism. And so it was just seeing the impact on them and felt quite disillusioned. So that's when, when you asked about hope, I was like, eh, I don't know if I felt hopeful after that. It's more that it's, it's helping me continually crystallize. What are the questions that I'm carrying? So I guess that is a good thing. Okay. And have you, this is a bit off the wall and it may not be possible to answer, but I, so I listened to Upstream and you talk to so many, they tend to be young, they tend to be very idealistic people who are, as you say, doing their best to struggle against the tide of whatever we might call it, predatory capitalism. You probably wouldn't be quite as derogatory as I am of it. Um, have you come across anybody who is absolutely embedded in the capitalist system and has thrived in it and has made their millions or billions or scullions and who also wishes to change the system? Or is it only those of us on the edges who are wanting to change it? I would say I have a hard time pinpointing anyone who's not within capitalism because I might... But, okay, but some some right. thrive more than others within. We're all we yes, okay. So we are fish in the sea, but some of us are enjoying. Yeah, I the mean, sea I I would others. say that um, my understanding of what capitalism is has gotten more nuanced, and and now I I find it more useful to break it apart into different pieces, um, such as the growth mindset or private property ownership or the disconnection between being an employer and an employee. So there's there's many different ways, but I would say okay. that in all those realms, I have found people who are both within that and questioning and critiquing it. Absolutely. And I would say I haven't really found anybody who is within that realm who is completely happy and, and, and sold on the idea. So yeah, I would say most folks understand that there's something off or wrong or there's there's better that is possible. Okay. So if we were to provide a, a a working model of the better, they might be more inclined to move towards. It seems to me that that often, particularly we just had a, a general election in this country, you're heading towards a general election in the States. And I don't like the tribalism that happens, but if we accept that it does happen and the political system is what it is, that we on the left struggle to enunciate a clear vision of how things could be different that doesn't feel impossible. On the doorsteps, when I got people to talk about something other than Brexit, if I got people to talk about something other than Brexit, the average person's view of what we and the progressive side were suggesting was that it just couldn't happen. Whereas the other side is selling a completely different set of values, and, and they are selling values. And I'm wondering if we ever, whether this is simply an impossible conflict between one side, which is basically triggering everybody's amygdala, and the other side, which is trying to evoke compassion. And yeah, yeah, the intrinsic versus the ex extrinsic, which I haven't spoken about on the podcast yet. Um, and could we, if we were able to provide a a model that sounded, and a, and a route to get there. This was always my thing, if we need a new narrative, and Rob Hopkins is really working towards that, if we could provide a story that had an obvious, you know, yellow brick road to get to Narnia. I, okay, I just mixed the stories a bit there. Um, <laughs> would, would people 
be more inclined to try and travel it? That's it's probably not an answerable question, but you can give it a go. I, I think absolutely. I think that the the invitation of the great turning to me is to turn towards life in every moment of every day. If we all invited ourselves to see the great turning and to try it on in our lives, in everything we do, like in our intimate relationships, in our relationship with food, in our relationships with our homes, in our work, etc., everything, um, that would be the yellow brick road that you're speaking about. And I really do think it is a moment-to-moment experience. It's not a plan because I have known many folks who who work in, you know, mission-driven organizations, nonprofits, etc., who are still, you know, cruel to one another or are, feel feel alienated or disconnected or, you know, there's there's still that. So that's why it is a moment-to-moment experience as well as a s- systemic change. But I, I do think for me, I because I've felt it helpful to pick apart capitalism into these pieces, I've also felt it's it's helpful to pick apart the ideal or the new vision or the new economy um, to pick it apart and to go that way. So, like first looking at land ownership, you know, looking at money, looking at the growth mindset, looking at our mindset, our our paradigm, right? Like the, when it's helpful to me to pick them apart. And then once we pick them apart and examine them and we have the systems designers working in all areas. And then when we put that back together, it's something that's greater than the sum of its parts. And I don't sure. think we have a name for that it, that yet. Yeah. Something emerges out of the complexity of the system. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Kind of what we're suggesting with accidental gods, but but we're trying to do it with consciousness and you're talking about doing it with the economy. Um, but it sounds really exciting. But I'm talking about changing happening? the economy with consciousness. Yes, so I'm, absolutely. I'm right there with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and because the economy is so fundamental to how we treat ourselves and each other and the more than human world, sadly, but it is. Um, I had one last question and this may be too far off the wall. We may end up editing it out. I've been reading quite a lot of Ken Wilber's work. Are you familiar with that at all? The Absolutely. I use it in almost all of my 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 talks. <laughs> Good. Okay, so I haven't yet recorded a podcast about it, but I may do. Um and that might play before they before we hear this because series one is me talking and series two is me talking to somebody else. Um I get very stuck with Ken Wilber and because of the work that you're doing at the LSE, I'd be really interested in your insight into this because if I've understood him correctly, he's talking about an ascending spiral where the mythical and the magical worldviews are lower down the spiral and they are more to me the shamanic indigenous worldviews. And I end up in conversations with faith a lot whereby we go around in a circle of Every indigenous culture, genuinely, way back indigenous, before white people got there, indigenous, seemed to live in context with the earth. Certainly every forager-hunter society lives in context with the earth. It just does. That's the way they survive. And much more in context with themselves and each other. And yet, we can't go back to that. It's not physiologically possible. We have to go forward. But is there some, what is it that we bring forward from our remembered past or that we relearn from whatever indigenous cultures survive? And God knows our culture seems to be doing its best to wipe them out. How do we move towards what Ken Wilber calls 
teal or the third system or whatever it is that we call it. You might It might be useful if you gave a very brief overview of Ken Wilber's thinking, because that might save me doing an entire podcast. And then it, am I seeing a paradox that doesn't really exist in his thinking? Uh, because it it just seems to me that it there's quite a lot of colonialism in his thinking, and it it makes me very cross. But I think maybe I'm looking at it wrong. Have I articulated a question that you understand? Yeah, absolutely. And so I'll share what what's touched me from Ken Wilber's work is actually a much more simple part of it. It's his four quadrants, uh, which are just it's a way of seeing. It's another way of seeing systems change, just as the three pillars of the great turning. And in it, he has kind of one column, which is the the I, so the individual, the personal, and then the another column, which is the we, the collective, together. And then he has a, a overlaying, you know, if you look at it like a cross, right? He has a overlaying two quadrants that are or two rows, which are the internal and then one which is the external. And so he just he what's helpful for me there is to think about our systems change and our efforts such as the individual i which is the internal our own beliefs and um our individual dreams things like that and then our secondly the next quadrant over is the external i which is our behaviors our own actions our own consumptive patterns for example and then the collective internal is our paradigms our worldviews our collective values and then the last area is the external collective which are our systems our structures so that's what's helpful for me from him is is this kind of understanding a more holistic perspective of systems change uh, and where we fit in that together now the spiral dynamics piece i would say for me that is connected with the shift in consciousness but that second level of the leverage points meaning he offers a framework about looking at paradigms and offers different ways of seeing them and choices between them and i think folks can read them and find different connections with them but i do i am personally a little uh, hesitant to rank uh, consciousness because it, it to me it can get into othering uh, and better than thinking and proselytizing. So that's why in my work, I frame it more as these are many different paradigms and we have choices to choose between them. And But it is true that some are more supportive of life enabling and life supportive systems than others, right? So so I would say if you read it, then find what, what it is that you resonate with and you connect with, right? And go with that. But to your point, I think um, indigenous wisdom absolutely offers so many ways of thinking, such as thinking about like seven mm, generation yes. thinking an idea from native american uh, traditions where you you when you do an action or make a decision you think about its effect on the seventh generation yeah. from now a beautiful paradigm shift invitation now you know i think we we try them on and we work with them in today's time you know so i definitely hear you some people think we want to return to some time before capitalism or whatnot no let's work with where we are and what we have let's turn towards life now this this is the time of the great turning as it is now right and so so for me it's to try on those paradigms and i to be honest i don't know what shifts those will manifest as um, but I do know that if we feel that they are what is supportive of the great turning, um, then absolutely try them on, invite them in, just remember to stay transcendent of those paradigms and not attached to them. 
Brilliant. Thank you. Okay, I think we're heading towards the end. I have one last question. So if there was just one thing each of us could do now, today, and I think you've already just answered it, but let's try anyway. For all of the people listening, they want to turn towards life. One thing that they could do now. I think maybe listen comes up because like I was just imagining for me, if I were to turn towards life in this moment, it would be to pause and to listen to what that would look like. Uh, I really do see it as like a, just an ever, ever moment to moment practice, ever present practice. So in my choice of what to eat, in my choice of what I do with my time in my choice of my communications and relationships, but also in my larger life you know, visions and dreams and contributions. If I pause and I listen to what's really being called for me to contribute in, um, that's, I think that's where it starts is listening. And I, and I don't mean like, you know, it's not just internal, it's also external. If it helps to talk to the river or the, you know, to go outside in the forest, right? Of course, wherever listening happens for you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's, that's, Brilliant and wonderful and a great place to end. So um, thank you, Della Duncan, for being our first guest on this second series of the podcast. It's been a real honour. And I give it probably about six months. We'll probably come back and have another conversation because there are so many questions we didn't get to. Anytime. But I think that'll do. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So that's it for this episode. Huge thanks to Della for phoning in from California at some ungodly hour in the Californian morning. Thanks also to Caro C for sound production and for the music at the head and foot of the podcast. Thanks to Faith Tilleray for designing the website and for being the other half of everything that is Accidental Gods. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoy what you hear, please give us five stars and a review on the podcast app of your choice. It helps us to get known. But please also share us with your friends. Share us with anybody that you know who wants to make the world a more just, and equitable place. And if you want to know more about us, if you want to join the membership program, if you want to see any of the blogs, we're at accidentalgods.life and the same on various parts of social media. So until next week, thank you for being there and goodbye.